After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America Prospects podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, here to break down the Baltimore Orioles farm system today with John Mioli. John is the Orioles beat writer for the Baltimore Sun. He's done the Orioles Prospect Handbook Chapter 4 CBA for a number of years now. John, thanks so much for joining us today. How's it going, man? It's good, it's good. It's always good to talk to you. The Orioles, as we know, are in the midst of a rebuild. They just went 52-110, and 110, tied for the worst record in Major League Baseball. They're going to have the number one overall pick in this upcoming draft. There is some talent in the majors we saw emerge this year. Ryan Mountcastle came up and led all rookies in home runs. Cedric Mullins had a breakout year with a 30-30 season. Of course, Trey Mancini coming back from colon cancer, having uh, the season he did was obviously great to see. So there are some pieces here, but at the same time, with those positive developments, this is still a team that, as we mentioned, had the worst record in baseball and is very far away from competing. With that, the promise for this franchise is in the future and specifically the farm system. So, John, just to be blunt about it, what is the state of this farm system? Because a lot of the Orioles' hopes and dreams right now is riding on that. Uh, I, I think I, I think if we had to pick a word for that, I think the word would, would just be not ascendant. So, so that's not the that's not the right word. I think that the word for the Orioles farm system is like progressive, progressing. I mean, this is they're doing everything that they, that you would want them to be doing in order to get where they want to be. Um, this is an organization that knows that they're going to have to do everything, you know, below the major league level very, very well to be able to compete in the division that they're going to be in. And it, they're an organization that knows, you know, and believes in what they're doing, you know wholeheartedly there's not a lot of dissent in the organization for better or worse you know that could mean there's you know no no one speaking up when when they're trying to do something and saying hey maybe we do it a different way it's it's all full on you know we are going to do this our way we are going to draft the players that we think are going to turn into big leaguers we are going to develop them in a certain way that we believe will make them the best big leaguers possible um, and we will we will get the most value out of out of the young players that we have but at the major league level that hasn't really started to show yet. Um, I think that in the next year or so, once the Adley Rutschman types, um, you know, get to the big leagues, it'll be a little more clear what that's going to look like, but they're kind of in this weird no man's land now where for all the fantastic work they're doing on the farm, it's still really hard to see it. And if you're turning on the television and watching the Orioles play every night. 
Yeah, the Orioles have lost at least 108 games each of the last three full Major League seasons. Obviously, the 2020 season was shortened, but 2018, 2019, 2021, it's been pretty rough. And a lot of those hopes and dreams in the farm system are put on the shoulders of their number one prospect, Adley Rutschman, as you alluded to earlier. He was the number one overall pick in the 2019 draft out of Oregon State and really seen as one of the better draft prospects to come around in a while, not to the level of a Bryce Harper or Steven Strasburg, but there was a sense that he was the clear-cut number one guy in his class for the better part of a year, lived up to every expectation at Oregon State. The Orioles had to wait for his first full season for a little bit, signed and went out in that partial season in 2019. Obviously, the 2020 minor league season was canceled due to the coronavirus pandemic, but he came out this year in 2021, his first full season, went straight to double A, did excellent there offensively and defensively, finished the year in triple A. Everything looked good on paper. The scouting reports were good. And realistically, there's not really an argument that he's not at least one of the top three prospects in baseball. And a lot of people believe he is the number one prospect in baseball. Just based on your discussions with evaluators, both inside and outside the organization, what are the assessments of Adley Rutschman right now, especially because he is so important to the Orioles and their fortunes moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think you're gonna find you're gonna have a hard time finding people, you know, who, who have areas where they can where where they can in good faith ding him. I mean, defensively, he's everything you want in a catcher in terms of game calling, receiving, uh, controlling the running game, working with pitching staff. You know, defensively, as advertised, exactly what you want in a catcher. And I think what the Orioles like and and what you know people on the outside, if they were watching as the full season went on this year, would like about him is, is that he's still you know the kind of guy as good as he is he is not settling for being this good he wants to be great he wants to be as as impactful as possible you know there was a stretcher in the middle of the season at Bowie he was working with the hitting coach there Ryan Fuller who's now one of the co-hitting coaches on big league staff for the Orioles and a little bit of a rough stretch he wasn't really hitting the ball you know hard in the air as consistently as he wanted he was hitting a lot of home runs but it was a lot of like you know, moonshot home runs. It wasn't like line drive doubles in the gap, those kinds that get over the fence and, and, and are the true mark of a power hitter. Um, those low, those lower home runs for lack of a better word. So they kind of did some swing work. They tried to figure out, you know, they're, they're, they're the kind of hitters who wait a long time to, to catch the ball deep and still drive it. And there's those who attack it way out in front of the strike zone. He was kind of in the middle of that. So they did a lot of work to try to figure out which one of those was going to be better for him. He decided that he was going to be a wait for the ball to get deep kind of guy. And, from that point on at Bowie and then up to Norfolk and AAA when he spent the last six weeks there, his line drive rates were much, much higher. The power numbers were still there. It's just a better overall contact profile. And this is someone who didn't really need to do that. I think that's what the Orioles, you know, are probably the most excited about. He didn't need to change how, you know, his approach at the plate, how he swung. You know, he's already got a great eye. You know, he could do what he was doing and be fine, but he didn't want to be fine. He wanted to be great. And I think that's the kind of thing that the Orioles – need you know it's a coaching it's a you know development it's every kind of sports cliche in the world that you want your best players to be your hardest working ones and I think the Orioles have that in Adley Rutschman yeah again uh, the performance speaks for itself a hit for average got on base at nearly a 400 clip slugged over 500 nearly as many walks as strikeouts 23 homers again going double a triple in his first full season Um, there's a lot to like there and as you mentioned there's not a whole lot of people dinging him and there's no such thing as a guaranteed prospect ever, but at the same time, there does seem to be a, a fair amount of confidence within the industry that he will be an impactful player in the major leagues. It's just a matter of what degree that impact is. A lot of people think it will be true franchise caliber impact. Others think it's 
you know, quote unquote, merely an all-star, which is still a fantastic outcome. So I, I think there's really a lot of confidence in who he is as a player, as well as you mentioned some of the mental aspects that this is someone who, as long as he stays healthy, which is a big thing for catchers, especially, but as long as that happens, can be the type of player the Orioles can build around moving forward. Yeah. And, and I think, and I think it's important to note that, you know, whatever he's up next year, whether it's opening day, whether the CBA allows that, whether it's late in the season, I mean, you look at some of the early projections, you know, from places like Fangrass, baseball reference, all those places that do that type of stuff. Like Adley Rutschman, just based on what he's done already is, is already projected to be like, um, if not their best, like their second most productive hitter. Like this is something that like, it's not just people who watch the games. It's not just scouts. It's not just people in the Orioles who have so much invested in him. Not saying that this is going to be a guy who makes an impact, you know, it's like objective data uh, and, and tried and true forecast. They look at what Adley Rutschman has done in the minors, even though it's only one full season. And they're like, yeah, this is going to be good right away. And I think that's, you know, I think there's, I think the Orioles fans, you know, they've been sold a lot on the future and some of it's true and some of it might prove to be untrue, but like what they're going to want to see is, you know, guys like him performing in the big leagues soon. And, you know, just those things aren't, you know, end all be all, but, it's a pretty good measure of what, what, what could be expected. And I think the Orioles, once he, once he see him, they see him in a big league uniform can expect that it's going to be pretty good. Absolutely. Adley Abrechman, as we talked about, is one of the top three prospects in baseball. Again, there's not really an argument. He's not one of those top three. The Orioles also have Grayson Rodriguez, who there is an argument that he's the best pitching prospect in baseball. And there's, again, not really an argument that he's not at least one of the three best pitching prospects in baseball. So you have these two guys at the top who are excellent, excellent players. But as we kind of talked about earlier, the Orioles are not one or two players away here. There are many players away. You don't go from 110 losses to the playoffs because your top two guys live up to expectations. There's a lot of things that have to happen below them. And I want to focus on DL Hall a little bit. The Orioles in particular have really, really struggled on the pitching side. Outside of John Means, there's really just not a whole lot in the rotation right now. You can feel great about moving forward. And DL Hall has flashed fantastic stuff when he's been on the mound problem is he hasn't been on the mound very much. He made only seven starts this year, was shut down with a stress reaction in his left elbow. And you look at how his innings progression is going, it's going in the wrong direction each season. 2018, his first full season, he threw 94.1 innings. 2019, the next season, only 80 and two-thirds. Now 2021, he only threw 31 and two-thirds innings. He's had trouble staying on the mound. There's been some walk issues. Again, the stuff is fantastic, but you have to be on the mound to showcase it. What is his status, and realistically, what can Orioles fans expect here? So, so shortly before the, um, you know, before the lockout, Deal Hall was added to the forty-man roster. He was also throwing for the first time at the Orioles facility down in Sarasota. Obviously, he'll have to be doing that at home as a forty-man guy now um, with the lockout. But somebody starting to throw in November would would reasonably, you know, put them on track to be full go in in in, in spring training and. And, and truthfully, I believe that the Orioles you know, are, are still confident that he can be, you know, an impact pitcher. I mean, somebody, you know, who doesn't command the ball as well as he should, who has that kind of stuff, you're obviously thinking about somebody who could make an impact in the bullpen, but the Orioles believe he has the pitch mix and, and, and the overall athleticism to be able to repeat his delivery well enough to, to keep it in the strike zone, to be able to go over through a lineup a couple times and, and hopefully stay healthy doing that. I think that one of the one of the one of the advantages of, of the way this Orioles organization is going to be viewing guys like him is that I don't think that once he's healthy and once he's ready to go, 
next year. I'm not sure that there's going to be a very long lead time between, you know, between him showing that he's healthy and showing that he can perform at what, what I assume to be triple A is where he'll start. And the moment when he gets to make his big league debut, I don't think the Orioles are in a position to hold somebody like him back um, and say, Oh, well, we have to make sure he gets a full season under his belt. We have to make sure he's healthy. Like they're going to protect him and not overuse him. But I think that when they use him, they're going to use him in the big leagues because he has big league stuff. Um, He has, the big league mentality. He has, you know, the talent to learn in the big leagues. And I think they have the instruction to help him get better in the big leagues, even if he's not completely fully developed when he makes that debut. So I think that the good news is that he's healthy. He's, he's back on the field. Um, he should be ready for spring training. And f- for Orioles fans, you're not going to have to wait to see him very long once he is healthy, because I don't think they're in the they're, I think they know what they have in him, and they also know the risk that, that you're acknowledging. And they're not going to waste bullets and say, oh, we need a full season of AAA for D.L. Hall before we get him to the big leagues. I don't know who that serves. And, and with that in mind, they're just going to say, if you're healthy, we're doing this. And, and that'll be really fun to say. Yeah, the walks were still a little high this year at four and a half per nine, but it did represent an improvement. His strikeout rate was the highest of his career. Again, the walks, he lowered him. And the hits per nine, I mean, he actually allowed the same number of hits per nine as walks per nine, four and a half. So it shows you the quality of his stuff when he's in the strike zone. It's just getting him into the strike zone more consistently. And some of that is reps and being on the mound and getting a feel for everything. You kind of alluded to this. You can see the stuff playing in relief, but obviously you want him to be a starter with injury concerns and control issues, what is kind of the split here in terms of the realistic outcome that he is a starting pitcher versus he has to end up going to the bullpen? Well, I, I, th- I think that I think it will be, if, if anything ha- is going to keep him out of the rotation, it would be the health stuff. I think the Orioles feel confident that in, in, in the pitch quality and how he uses them and how they play that even if he's not, you know, even if he's not spotting up in the strike zone, even if he's not, even if he's not, you know, donning it up and being a command artist, that he's going to be able to pitch well enough results-wise, even if, that, that walking a few batters isn't going to necessarily hurt him. He just doesn't give up hard contact when he does get hit. And they, they saw enough, I believe, in, in what he did in double-A to, to think that high-level hitters are still going to chase outside the strike zone with him because you have to be geared up for, for 99 uh, from the left side. And if you're going to – if you're going to pick fastball in your mind and then you get a slider and, and it's out of the strike zone, you're still not going to hit it. Uh, and they believed it just because of the quality of the stuff, the, the velocity he shows that even if he's not, you know, in the strike zone all the time, that he will be able to pitch as a starter because of that. But, you know, the health stuff, it's getting to the point now where you do have to ask that question. I think that the Orioles track record, you know, with top with first round picks out of high school who, who have great stuff and not necessarily the physical reliability to make that happen as quickly as they want it to be. I think that's fair, but this is a different organization. This is a different farm system. It's a different development plan. And they haven't, um, you know, they haven't kind of shown the lack of success that the last, uh, you know, front office and player development system did. So I think they kind of have to get a chance to, to, to keep DL Hall healthy before we could say that they won't. These three players have pretty consistently been the top three in the Orioles system for a couple of years now. All three of them have ranked in the top 50 of the BA top 100. After this group, there's an interesting group of young position players who are fairly new to pro ball. Gunnar Henderson, Colton Kowser, Jordan Westberg, even Kyle Stowers. 
how did you kind of sort this group out? And ultimately, what was the next tier? Was it just these four? Was there someone else in there? How did this kind of get sorted out beyond this clear-cut top three? So, so I think I think to answer the second part first, I think Heston Kerstad was kind of in the mix for this. It's just so hard to know. I know I'm sure I'm sure we'll get to him, but you know the second overall pick with with, with real power potential and and the kind of bat you can slot into the middle of a big league lineup fairly fairly easily. That's something that you know that is easily a top five, six, seven prospect in an organization like this. Um, if he's healthy, obviously he didn't play because of. Uh, you know, myocarditis, he had heart inflammation that basically kept him off the field all year. Um, so there, there were question marks there, but I think he, if he was healthy, he would be in that mix as well. I, I arrived at this group truthfully because this is the strength of the system. This was a farm system that didn't have those types of, you know, true power hitters, those types of true up the middle, uh, you know, defenders, those kinds of true, you know, impact infielders. And I think that they represent what the Orioles think that they can draft well and develop well. Uh, Gunnar Henderson ended up being the top of that list for a few reasons. I think age obviously is one of them. And the fact that he was able to climb to double A in his first full season, basically age 20 the whole time. I think that spoke to his aptitude. I think that the way that he dominated uh, low A East, whichever, uh, whichever league Delmar was in, I think the way that he dominated that league was, was impressive. I think the Orioles, really happy that he struggled the way he did when he went up to high A because he had to figure it out and he did. And then he held his own and was one of the more productive players that Bowie had uh, in the double A playoffs. And it's just combined that with what he did learning against the higher level hitters at the alternate site and, and his ability to potentially stick at shortstop and be, you know, a true offensive impact player. I think at his age is, is kind of distinguishing at that. I think that Colton Kowser as a contact hitting, you know, center fielder with the ability to add some power is just the kind of profile the Orioles have really honed in on and really like. This whole draft was full of players that they sent their scouts out looking for guys who didn't really strike out that much, who put the ball in play with the idea that they can take those natural bat-to-ball skills and bring the power out. Jordan Westberg, uh, somebody else who has that kind of similar profile. There was a lot of striking out. Um, you know, his, his junior season before COVID hit in 2020 at Mississippi State. But I think that considering how well that he played in his first full year, I think they, they, they kind of chalked that up to some draftitis a little bit and, uh, and, and, are, and are really happy with the kind of player that you have. So, and then Kyle Stowers broke out um, with 20-something home runs. Um, you know, harder contact overall than Adley Rutschman, who obviously hits the ball very hard, as we spoke about. Just a true power bat, you know. And I think that all those carrying tools, you know, Stowers is power, um, the hit tool for Kowser. We have legit big league shortstop defense for Westberg and, and the ability to hit for average and a little power. And then, truthfully, the chance to do everything for Gunnar Henderson. I think that those things really separate them fr- from the rest of the organization. And absent, though, like, maybe they'll be number four starter type guys that all graduated this year. Um, and, and weren't part of these rankings anymore. I think that it was pretty clear that that core group there uh, between Henderson, Westberg, Kowser, and, and Stowers was, was the next tier here. Absolutely. All right, John, I want to dive into the rest of the system with you. Uh, first, we're going to take a quick break. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly, beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. And we're back with John Mioli of the Baltimore Sun here breaking down the Orioles' top 10 prospects. John, we hit the top of this system. And again, there's a lot of really, really talented position players here. A couple guys were in the top 100, as well as two premium pitchers. Heston Kerstad was the number two overall pick in the 2020 draft out of Arkansas, has yet to play a professional game. He came down with COVID after being drafted and suffered heart inflammation. A myocarditis is the condition. And there's been some concern about how this would affect his career long-term. What is Heston Kierstad's status right now? So, so he was back in the instructional league, um, pretty much full go, um, playing with his teammates, trying to get, you know, trying to get back into the swing of things. Mentally, physically, he was somebody, you know, I, I thought it was really endearing. Uh, I, I don't know if that's the word to use, but he said he tried to find other hobbies. You know, this is a guy who's, you know, spent his whole life dedicated to becoming, you know, a fantastic baseball player and getting drafted number two overall and made himself in from, you know, the classic was a scrawny kid when he showed up on campus and was hitting bombs as, you know, by the time it's time to get drafted, he worked so hard and he was trying to find things to do to fill his time. He realized like all he wanted to do was just play baseball. It's just what he loves. And, and you hear somebody say that and, and, and it's almost a good thing because I think there's going to be a lot of work truthfully to get back to, where he was this was someone who his big league future was predicated on being like a power hitting corner outfielder you know there's 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 some arm there he's not going to be a, he's not going to be like a plus defender but he's going to be a fine defender he maybe hit for average he's going to hit the ball hard but this is somebody whose value was going to be hitting the ball over the fence and and being a part of the middle of the lineup and when you can't exercise when you can't exert yourself physically for as long as he he was prevented from doing so there's really a lot of ground to make up you're you know obviously you have to you know you have to go slowly you can't just be like okay i'm gonna start i'm gonna start you know slamming like 200 pound you know 
bench, you know, I, I don't know what, I don't know what a baseball player's exercise, you know, workout, but you're not going to be able to do it all right away. You're not going to be able to do what you were doing as a, as a junior, uh, you know, at Arkansas, you know, going out trying to win the Golden Spikes Award as you are now, you're gonna have to build up to that. And I think that because so much of his value was tied up in, in, in the power there, I think it's gonna be really interesting to see how quickly he can get back to that. You know, the Orioles were, were felt felt good about the fact that his swing is not, you know, it's not an overly mechanical one. They felt like it was a natural swing. It was, you know, very unique to him and it's something that, he, that comes to him easily. So they liked what they saw once he got back into the box, back into the cage and started swinging the bat a little bit. I think it's just going to be a matter of how quickly can he start impacting the ball the way that he wants to. Um, th- there's there's the opportunity for, for the time away and the time that he was able to spend, you know, learning the mental side of the game and, and dealing with adversity that everyone has to go through before you get to the big leagues. There's a chance that all of that could, could in an, in a kind of backwards way, really help him. Um, but truthfully, it's going to be hard to see until, until the game start in, in the spring, whether it's minor league spring training games or, you know, wherever he ends up assigned, whether it's low A, high A, you're just going to have to, you're, 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 there's going to be a lot to be gleaned early on. And I, and I think that it'll be important to note then too, that this is not going to be the finish, but this isn't going to be, you know, like Adley Rutschman after not playing in games for a year going out and being Adley Rutschman and saying, Oh, this is what it is. You know, this is going to be more of a progression, but I think that the Orioles, the way that they've drafted and, and kind of stockpiled outfielders recently, it's not like there's any kind of super rush to get Heston Kerstad to the big leagues. Like there might've been, you know, two years ago. Yeah, I think first and foremost, we want to make sure he's healthy just for his life, independent of baseball. Obviously, anytime you're talking about a person's heart, it can be pretty scary and serious stuff. So I think that's priority number one. But uh, obviously, you know, when he gets back on the field, it will certainly be a great moment for him, as well as the Orioles organization as a whole. John, rounding out the system, two very different players, Kyle Bradish, a right-hander who got up to AAA, and Kobe Mayo, a third baseman who got to full season ball for the first time at the very tail end of last season. As you kind of put this list together and talk to evaluators both inside and outside the system, how many guys in this top 10 would you say were clear-cut top 10 prospects? And how many guys was it kind of on the fence? And, and also, who else was kind of in the mix here? Um, so so I, think that, I, I think that especially given how much the Orioles have pushed for, for Kyle Bradish as, as kind of a, you know, their next best pitching prospect. I think that, I think that he was always going to be in this top 10 mix. Um, Mike Bauman was somebody who was in that kind of tier as well, but then below them, you know, those two guys, Bauman made his major league debut, Bradish, who came over in the Dylan Bundy trade, uh, had a very good start to the year at double a fell off a little bit in triple a and then, and then picked it up as, as the season went on. I think that those two guys were, were really the only pitchers in the mix. Um, and then you have like a next tier, that's it's in the lower teens that are just not, you know, that are not of that caliber. I think hitter wise, Kobe Mayo was kind of, was kind of a late bloomer in the process as well. Um, there are guys like Taryn Vavra who came over in the Michael Givens trade for, uh, from the Colorado Rockies who had a very productive year, even though he spent, you know, half of it on the injured list at, at Bowie, who was in the mix, Connor Norby, who led the NCAA hits and was the Orioles second draft pick this year, also in the mix. And, and then some of their international you know, signings. They signed two of their first seven-figure uh, international bonus amateurs. Uh, the, I, I don't, I don't know how to order those words. <laughs> they signed two, signed two seven-figure uh, international amateurs at the beginning of 2021, and they both showed a lot of promise down in the Dominican Summer League. And I think they were kind of in that mix as well. But you know, truthfully, I think Kobe Mayo showed, you know, 
the power potential that he was drafted and earned him a, you know, a seven figure above slot bonus in 2020. And he showed the ability to keep the ball in play and to, to improve his contact profile very, very quickly. He had a knee injury early in minor league spring training and, and had to spend a lot of time down at the complex kind of rehabbing that. I think they realized at that point it would be better for him to just stay back with the 2021 draft class and get some, get some Florida complex league time and then go up to low A with that group. And, and I think that that did him a lot of good both working down there with Anthony Villa, the hitting coach, and uh, and getting that experience around those very, those older, you know, more mature college players. I think that what he showed overall really elevated him to that spot. But I think that I think that the separator proved to be that just you know I think there's a lot of you know we talk about a Vavra, we talk about a Norby, Norby, you know, a, a, a hit first, you know, decent glove second baseman is is a good prospect, but somebody who can have you know true elite power potential and and shows signs that he could do that without the swing and miss fears and without the weird contact profile that he had a year ago as a draft I think that that type of player coming out of high school in his first professional season I think there's just a little more upside that you have to bet on there yeah one of the things that jumps out to me is seven of the top 10 players in this system as you have them ranked are position players. As we talked about the Orioles major league roster, the guys you look at and you say, hey, here's some guys we can build with. Ryan Mountcastle, Cedric Mullins, Trey Mancini, if they keep him. You know, even Austin Hayes had an okay year. Ops plus over 100, 22 homers, 250. The on-base is never going to be high with him, but still some productivity, especially for a guy in his age 25 season. Whereas on the pitching side, it's really John Means and you know Tyler Wells was a very, very productive Rule 5 pick. Cole Sulcer has been a nice find, but he is 31 years old. So this is a team that in order to become a winning Major League franchise is going to have to add pitching. A lot of guys who have been on this prospect list before got their first extended run in Major League Baseball this year. And it was a struggle. Keegan Aiken, Bruce Zimmerman, Dean Kramer, they're going to have to add some arms from the outside looking in, it looks like they're probably going to have to add them from the outside because even if Hall hits and Rodriguez hits, you have means that's three, but you really need a, a lot of starters to get through a major league season. It can't even be just five, really. You've got to have some depth there. Are they going to have to go outside the organization to get the pitching they need to be a contender? I, I think so. I think when you're talking about true rotation pieces outside of those guys that we mentioned, I think that I think that part of the reason that they're – their drafts have been so heavy on, uh, on, on the hitting side and so, so tilted towards taking productive college hitters is because, you know, and I think there's a lot of truth to this, is that those players tend to be the most productive minor league players and those players climb the ladder and, and have a chance to be productive major league players. And you can only have so many of them in the lineup, but if you have a stockpile of those and you're able to go out and get, you know, a first, second, third year arbitration eligible pitcher to be in your rotation and, 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 and supplement that. So I think that those are the types of moves that they're planning on making um, when the time comes. I don't think that time is obviously this year, although they're paying $7 million to Jordan Lyles this year to, to, to kind of be in that rotation and, 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 and be a veteran force in that. Um, so I think, I think that that shows that there's going to be spaces, at least in the payroll for those kind of, you know, higher price starters. And I think they're probably going to be able to use the prospect capital that they're building through these drafts to, to get, you know, club control guys who can be a part of this for a couple seasons and, and, and supplement that. But internally, I think that, you know, truthfully, they're going more, you know, because they're picking pitchers lower in the draft because they're getting these guys in trades. And obviously you're not getting players, you know, you're not getting top, top prospects for, you know, reliever trades. They're targeting, you know, 
pitch traits or targeting, you know, who has X weapon that we could work with and, and trying to develop that type of stuff. And it almost seems like it's going to be like a Tampa Bay Rays, like who can come up and turn the lineup over once and, and then go back to AAA for a week type deal. Um, they're, they're trying to, it seems like they're going internally, they're going to try to supplement, you know, whatever starting pitching deficiencies they have through, you know, sheer bulk and, maybe not the highest upside, but a lot of guys who have, you know, pitches that can get guys out in the big leagues and maybe can do that for, you know, two and a third. And then, and then you keep piecing that together, but outside the organization, I think there's going to be is where they're going to have to get, you know, the actual centerpieces of, 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 you know, the veteran stalwart type guys that they're going to need to, to compete once the time comes. And it's a model that can work. I think back to the Cubs a little bit. They built their World Series team. They drafted hitter after hitter after hitter in the top 10. And their entire rotation, and really a lot of their pitching staff, was acquired from outside the organization. Guys in trades, Jake Arrieta, of course, being one of them with the Orioles. Kyle Hendricks acquired in a trade as a minor leaguer. And they threw money at some guys, John Lester, John Lackey, et cetera. So it is a situation where we have seen that model work, where you homegrow the hitters and acquire the pitchers. But it's just interesting that, again, John Means is obviously homegrown. He's a, he's a big success. And if Grayson Rodriguez and Deal Hall are what everyone thinks they can be and can stay healthy, particularly in Hall's case, then they will have some homegrown successes. But I do think it's notable what they have in the major leagues and what they have in the farm system. It's not that hard to see a, a mostly homegrown lineup taking shape and being pretty good. But in order for them to feel the rotation they need and really fill out the pitching staff they need, there are going to have to be some out-of-organization acquisitions. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, I, I, this is, it's, it's very interesting to think about how, like, part of the reason that things went, you know, in the middle of this last decade, that things went the other direction for the Orioles was because they had to trade their homegrown pitching for, for position players. Um, you know, Zach Davies, Eduardo Rodriguez traded for Andrew Miller, obviously, but uh, they, they, spent a lot of, they spent a lot of their homegrown pitching on, you know, trying to upgrade the major league team and, and try to win now. But they've just opened up so many more avenues of, you know, player acquisition, whether it's international signings, whether it's, you know, the kinds of players they draft, whether it's how they're acquiring players and trades. They're just adding so much depth and tradable pieces that I don't think it's going to be harmful to them when they have to do that. You know, I, I feel like truthfully, you know, going back to my days at Sox Prospects, I feel like every year, every July, the or the Red Sox would trade, you know, two of their, you know, Latin American shortstops that they had signed the year before who had a decent year in the, in the DSL. And you just throw those guys into trades because they're talented because everyone sees the, what they could grow into. And you just have those guys, you know, as part of your trade stock, the Orioles didn't have those for decades. And now they're signing these players who, who, whether they make it to the major leagues with them or are valuable in trades that they can bring value other ways. And I think that, I think there's so many avenues for the Orioles to add talent that, that, that weren't, whether either open or successful in the past, that it's not going to be hugely detrimental if, you know, because they have six outfielders who they want to be able to put in their lineup who are actually, you know, talented enough to do it. If they trade one of them, it's not going to be the end of the world, especially if they get a pitcher that they don't have because of that. So, John, the big question before we wrap up here that I think everyone wants to know is, what's the timeline for this to start to turn upward? Again, they've lost at least 108 games each of the last three full seasons. They tied for the worst record in Major League Baseball once again last season, finished 48 games out of first place in the AL East. Again, there were some positive developments, but even with those positive developments, it was not nearly enough to get this team out of the cellar, really not just in their division, but in Major League Baseball. 
realistically, putting aside playoffs for a second, when can this start to even just turn upward? Uh, so, so the Orioles, uh, you know, of, of, of all the indignities they suffered last year, as we've, we've gone over, you know, they had a 14-game losing streak early in the season. They had 19 games, I believe, um, in August. And, like, you know, it's really hard. You know, I, it's really hard to play baseball in general. I was terrible at it um, from a young age, and I stopped playing at a young age. So I understand that this is not something you can just be, like, as simple as it sounds. But, like, they didn't win a game for, like, three weeks, and it was just, like, it was miserable to watch. It was miserable to be a part of. It was miserable for everyone to have to experience that. And, you know, there was there was a lot of frustration about how things were going, and they were pretty adamant that, you know, A, they're just taking advantage of the situation they're in with the CBA where, you know, you get the most draft picks and the best draft capital um, picking high. But in that process, as they're just losing and losing and losing, you know, it, it was a couple of people who, who had mentioned to me at one point, you know, we'll be interesting next year and then competitive the year after that. Uh, so, so I think that they're, they're banking on the fact that, you know, an Adley Rutschman, a Grayson Rodriguez, maybe a Kyle Stowers uh, towards the middle of the season, plus full years of, you know, the good Ryan Mountcastle and, and another good year from Cedric Mullins and maybe some of their, you know, 4A pitchers turn themselves into real big leaguers. And all of a sudden that's a team that's worth watching. You know, the lineup is going to be impressive either way. Some of the, some of the weaker spots in it were, you know, this year were catcher and Adley Rutschman is going to be, you know, immediately additive to that. Um, they've, they still have, you know, a good outfield. They still have the Mount Castle Mancini combo at first and DH, um, you know, who knows, maybe a Jordan Westberg can get up there and improve the infield defense and, and be like one of those, you know, homegrown, exciting type guys uh, in the middle of the infield. And all of a sudden you have an interesting team and they might not win at many more games than they would have before because the pitching staff still isn't going to be there, but, that'll be interesting and there'll be a reason to turn it on. And then once you have Rutschman there and you're like, all right, this is what it looks like. This is what we need. Then you can start making that those investments and really start to, and and really start to try to compete. So I think that the short answer that, you know, that I was told when everyone was trying to just spin the fact that they were losing through, they lost every game they played for three weeks, you know, is interesting next year and competitive the year after that, whether that happens, you know, who knows, but I think that, I think that that's probably the slowest acceptable timeline as well. Cause we're talking about the fourth year of this, even with COVID um, you know, four years of, of not even, you know, attempting to put a competitive team on the field is, is really hard to stomach. And I think a fifth would be a bridge too far. Yeah. There's no question. The 2022 season will be big for the Orioles again, just to show they're turning upward, even if it's a 70 and 92 season or a 72 and 90 season, something that shows progress because continuing to win between 48 and 54 games is obviously not something the franchise wants. As you mentioned last year, they had a 14 game losing streak in May, that ugly, ugly 19 game losing streak in August when they didn't just lose 19 straight games. I mean, there were scores here, 13 to one, 10 to three, 12 to three, 16 to two, 10, nothing. I mean, it's not even like, oh, you know, we're losing a bunch of one-run games here. I mean, they were just utterly non-competitive for most of it. And it's obviously something that no one wants to see. And then, you know, September, they had that 22-7 to loss to the Blue Jays. I mean, there was a lot of just non-competitive games throughout. May, they went 5-23. and August, they went 4-24. and So just getting back to not having months like that where you win one out of every five games you play, if that, that'll be a nice step forward. And then we'll see what they're able to do. But John, any final thoughts on this farm system as we wrap up? 
Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, I think that this time last year and going into the season when I was doing the companion piece for how for how highly rated the Orioles were going to be in the in the overall farm system rankings for you guys over there at BA, I, I kind of thought to myself, you know, 2019, great year for the pitching, you know, obviously all the technology and the improved coaching in the Orioles system really, really spiked the production and made players better across the board. Um, with, with countless examples of, of guys who got better, guys who had, you know, people have given up on who were back on the prospect radar, great, great stuff. 2020 doesn't really happen, but I thought to myself, like, what if that, that just happens on the hitting side? The Orioles for the 2020 season had done a lot of, you know, shrewd hiring and work to, and work to, you know, revamp their hitting program with the farm director, Matt Blood, bringing in a host of new coaches, new methods, trying to build a, a, a hitting department essentially from the ground up. There was no philosophy other than we're going to do the best thing for these players to make it work. And, and I even floated that to some of the organization. I was like, what if this is going to go as well as the pitching did? And they kind of pumped the brake. They're like, well, hitting is really hard. And fast forward a couple months later and OPS up was up like 40 points across the system in the full season levels. Like this stuff really worked. And I'm really excited to see what's going to be next on that. I mean, I think the pitching, I think the pitching will need to, We'll need to overall elevate um, in terms of the, the starting pitching talent. I think that I think that there's there's kind of a gap there, but but the idea that they've done exactly what they've set out to do in the two full minor league seasons and really revamped the player development department, I think the idea of that kind of kind of trickling up to the big leagues and starting to make this a little a little easier to watch is, is one that's going to be really exciting for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Again, Adley Rutschman and Grayson Rodriguez, two of the very best prospects in baseball, could potentially make their debuts next year, and that would be a big first step. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your insight as always. All right. Appreciate you having me. Talk to you soon. All right, everyone. That'll do it for another edition of the BA Prospects Podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For John Mioli, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.